Listeners, welcome back. You are now listening to Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries Unity in Christ program. For first-time listeners, my name is Christine Kim, and I am the host of this program. It is my sincere hope that last week we were all able to carry our weaknesses before the Lord. And we're able to experience the grace of being healed and restored. Do you believe you are saved? Have you ever been asked this question? When asked, how do you respond? And based on what foundation do you answer? I've come to realize that there are many people out there who cannot provide a firm answer when asked this question, and have to ponder their answer. There are some who believe they are saved because they come from a Christian family. Or have a Christian background, or grew up in the church from a young age. There are people who personally do not know yet if they have been saved. However, because the people around them are very firm in their beliefs, they feel embarrassed or ashamed to say that they are not completely sure. So they smile and pretend that they are also completely firm and confident in their answers. But on the inside, they have an answer they do not feel free to share. What about our listeners? Do you know if you have been saved or not? And based on what, what gives you confidence to answer the way you have answered? How do you know if you have received salvation? We'll come back to share more after our first song. Heroes and conquered the grave. 
Matthew 7 is a very well-known passage. Here are verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These words of Jesus tell us that he is speaking to people who are calling him Lord. Those people prophesied in the name of Jesus and even had the power to cast out demons. Up until the point they reached the gates of heaven, do you think they believed they had the salvation and a saving faith? Or not? If they didn't think they were saved, I would think that it would be hard for them to explain to Jesus that they did all these works in the name of his name. It seems that they truly believed they were saved. What if we held a faith or belief that we were saved and we were actually wrong? That would be a very big problem. If what we believed in, the belief that we had received salvation was false, but we only realized this when arriving at the gates of heaven, this would be the greatest disaster and one that we could not alter once we came to that place. Salvation is not simply repeating after a prayer and receiving a ticket to the gates of heaven. We cannot be confident that just because we have repeated this prayer after someone, we have been saved. Or just because we simply attend church, we have been saved. Then how can we know for sure that we have received salvation? By the fruits in our life. There has to be fruit or evidence of a change that has occurred in our life. Martin Lloyd-Jones of London one of the greatest expository preachers of the 20th century and one of the greatest leaders of the gospel shared with us 10 tests for knowing if we have received salvation. I would like to share these 10 changes and I would like all of us to reflect upon our own faith. First, there should be an absence of any sense that God is against us. A person of the flesh may have a sense or feeling that God is against them. These people feel happiness when they see words or content on social media websites that claim that God does not exist. These people tend to say things like, If God exists, how could He let this happen? Anytime something bad in the world occurs. Once again, people of the flesh feel happiness in the thought that God does not exist or they place blame on God if something goes wrong. But God tells us that people who are saved are free from these thoughts. Second, a loss of the fear of God while a sense of awe remains. It tells us in 1 John chapter 4, verses 16-18, through 18, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is so, also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. People who have received salvation are no longer afraid of judgment, and only left with their great fear, meaning awe of God. The third test of Martin Lloyd-Jones that lets us know if we have received salvation is a feeling in a sense that God is for us and that God loves us. God's love and generosity soon replaces a feeling of being afraid of God. 
Fourth is a sense that our sins are forgiven. Although we may not be able to understand how our sins have been forgiven, we become aware of it. Just like David's confession in Psalms chapter 51 verse 3, And my sin is ever before me. I remember my sins, but the moment I pray all my sins are washed away. It may be hard to understand and we honestly don't know how God does it. However, one thing we do know and realize is that our sins have been forgiven and washed away. And after realizing that our sins have been forgiven comes in the fifth change. What is it? A sense of gratitude and thanksgiving to God. How can we not be thankful and praise God after knowing and believing that He has sent His one and only Son who died on the cross for us? Pastor Lloyd-Jones tells us that our sense of gratitude and our heart's desire to praise God signifies that we have met Christ. And as this happens, it will lead us to the sixth change, which is an increasing hatred of sin. You can say that to hate sin is to love God, and to love God is to hate sin. This is because God and sin cannot go together. It says in Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13 that God cannot look at wrong. Therefore, regardless of how our emotions are, if we begin to hate sin, it is because the love of God is within us and because God is within us. Without God, there is not anyone who would hate sin. The seventh change is a desire to please God and to live a good life because of what He has done for us. When we experience and receive God's love, not only will we begin to hate sin, but we still strive to live a holy life. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 21, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. To have the passion to live by the word and to have an eagerness of living a holy life is evidence of someone who has received salvation. The eighth change is that we will begin to have a desire to know Him better and to draw closer to Him. Do our listeners want to know God more? When we fall in love with someone, we want to know more about them. In order to spend more time with that person, we adjust our schedule to make time for them. In order to spend more time with that person, we adjust our schedule to make time for them. Even during our busiest day, if given a chance to meet them for a little bit, we do whatever we can to see that person. Do we have this heart for God? If we have the heart in wanting to spend more time with Him and strive to hold a closer relationship to Him, then we are saved. The ninth is very passive, but very important. It is a conscious regret that our love for Him is so poor combined with a desire to love Him more. In a sense, it is very sad. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells us that we feel sad and hurt that we cannot give our utmost to our God, who is worthy of all of our praise, love, and life. Are all of these changes revealed in our listeners' lives? These are all questions we ask ourselves that no one else can answer for us. When the music fades, all is stripped away, and I simply come. Longing just to bring Something that's of worth That will bless your heart I'll bring you more than a song 
for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within, through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. When it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. Every single breath, I'll bring you more than a song. For a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within, through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made. When it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. Cause it's all about you, it's all about you. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. It's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. All about you. Heart. 
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Francis Chan of Cornerstone Church. Today's topic is the number one reason to trust in God, part two, based on Revelation chapter 14, verse 1 through 20. I hope you have a blessed time as you join Pastor Francis. Now here, guys, let's just stop for a second. Let me say something. These next few verses I'm about to read are, uh, are very difficult verses to read. They're not difficult to understand. They're just going to be difficult for you to hear and for me to read. But I'm going to read them. Revelation chapter 14, starting in verse 9. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This is a pretty severe warning. It's a warning to us, saying, don't you dare take the mark of the beast. The Bible explains that you won't be able to buy or sell without it. The Bible also explains if you don't take the mark, you suddenly become a marked man or woman, and they will seek to kill you. But the Bible says, don't you dare take it, because if you take it, you're going to go to hell. If you take it, it says that you'll receive all of God's wrath poured out upon you. It says that you will be tormented day and night forever and ever with burning sulfur. Now, you guys, I um, I don't like this passage, but I'm not going to cut it out of my Bible along with the other passages about this wrath of God and just say it doesn't exist. We can't just say, well, we take everything literally except for this part and this part and this part. And it's hard to believe that a God could be that angry with sin or for people worshiping the beast that he would have to torment them for eternity. And so we have a choice. Either we say, okay, well, I don't like it, but I have to believe it because that's what he says about himself. Or we say, I'll create my own God. I'll believe in one that wouldn't do something like this. And obviously that's an option. You can make up your own God and you can even carve out an idol and worship it. But I will say this, you guys. This is why the church exists. 
I take the Bible literally. And that's why I've devoted my life to tell people, look, you've got to give your life to Jesus. There's good news. We don't have to pay for our sin. We don't have to feel God's wrath at all. And you guys, this is why we as a church cannot, listen, we cannot afford to get petty. Okay, this, ha- this has been happening over the last few weeks. It happens in every church where people start fighting and getting so fired up over the stupidest things. You guys, people are going to hell. And we're going to complain and get outraged because of the color of the carpet or because they ran out of donuts or, oh, I had to sit in the satellite room. Well, the usher forgot to give me a bulletin or he looked at me funny. You guys, get over it. Seriously. I can't believe some of the things we care about and get mad about. People are going to hell. Spending eternity in torment. And that's why we exist as a church. We're trying to keep people from that. And so you're going to divide the church? You're going to try to get people so angry at each other? Why? Because someone said something that hurt your feelings? Or someone didn't treat your kid just right, just perfectly the way you want them treated? Look, everyone's doing their best. But you know what? I'm going to offend you. You're going to offend me. We're all going to get angry at each other for little things. We're going to hurt each other. We've got to get past it. We've got to let go of it. Why? Because don't you see, that's exactly what Satan wants us to do, to distract us from our mission. We've got a serious, serious message to get out to the world. I mean, this is the difference between heaven and hell. We have no time to fight over stupid things. And I know as a church grows, we'll we'll, we'll attract more church people. And it blows my mind how petty church people can be. I don't know what it is about the church, but sometimes it just attracts people who just like to complain about some of the most stupid things on the earth. And you guys, we're not going to let that happen here. We can't afford to. You guys, we've got a mission here. And so we've got to get past any offenses that we we do to each other. That's just going to happen. We're human. And we've got to embrace each other and say, we've got to get the message out. Let's not get distracted. See, guys, I understand it's hard. It's hard to do the right thing. It's hard when people offend you or do something that bothers you. But you guys, we're talking about something. The cost is too high. The price. We're talking about people's eternity. And you guys, this is what we devote our lives to. This is why we exist as a church. The Bible says if you want to do what's right, it's going to take endurance. It's going to take patience, especially in the end times. I mean, it says in in verse uh, 12, it says this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. It says if you want to remain faithful to Jesus, if you want to obey God's commands, it says it's going to take incredible patience and perseverance, meaning it's going to be tough. Patient endurance if you want to obey God's commands. And that's true right now. You guys, this verse right here flies in the face of all the people who have sat in my office and said, well, God wouldn't want me to do that because that would make me unhappy. You guys, God is telling the people here, you don't dare take that mark. Even if it means you starve to death. Even if it means you die. 
don't dare take that mark. You obey me, and it's difficult to obey me. And how many times have I been told, well, God wouldn't want me to stay in this family because it's making me unhappy, and God wants me happy. You guys, God says here, I want you to obey me even if it kills you. Even if you have to watch your family starve to death, don't dare take that mark. And there's no happiness clause here. Don't say, well, unless it makes you unhappy. Then you don't have to obey me. That's one excuse. You guys, God's never said that. Where do we get that from? You guys, if there's an almighty being who created me, then I just submit to him. I just do what he says. The beautiful thing about that is that God says, I love you. And you can trust me that I'm only going to ask you to do what is good for you. And that doesn't mean it's always going to be easy and always make you happy. But you've got to trust me. And then he gives us a reward. And the reward is verse 13. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. He kind of gives you the total contrast. Compared to those who are suffering with no rest for all of eternity, he says, but those who will die in my name, those who die in the Lord from now on, he says, blessed are they. He says, because they're going to rest from all of that hurt, from all of that pain. They're going to receive rest. And not only that, but their deeds are going to follow them. All the good things they've done on this earth, all the perseverance they did for me, it says that they're going to receive the reward for that. It's the same thing Jesus has been saying in the scriptures when he says, look, whatever you sacrifice for me here on earth, I'll reward you a hundredfold. I'll reward you, I promise you. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, our light and our momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. He says, whatever you suffer here on earth, you're going to be rewarded so much more there in heaven. And that's what this angel is proclaiming. Peace. It's saying, man, you're going to get rest. All that hard work, one day we're going to look back and say, wow, it was worth it. I don't have to suffer anymore. It's not hard to be a Christian once you get to heaven. It's not hard. You don't have to suffer anything. You just get rest. And it says that you will reap the rewards. All your deeds will follow you there. And then it goes on in verse 14 and talks about the return of Christ. It says, I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man. Now the Bible says when Jesus Christ returns, he's going to come seated on a cloud. You read about that in Daniel 7 and and in uh, Matthew 24. And here he is, he comes down on a cloud with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. You guys know what a sickle is? It's you know, a big stick with a sharp thing on it. And it would use it for a harvesting. And the picture here is when Christ returns, that's what he's coming to do to harvest the earth. And there's a question as to whether maybe right now he's in this picture he's harvesting the believers and taking them out from the earth or is he harvesting unbelievers because the picture of the sharp sickle. And uh, there's difficulties in both but uh, 
I, I believe he's harvesting the unbelievers. It could be the believers here. But uh, the next verse, the next few verses, when it talks about the other angel, makes it obvious that that angel, for sure, we don't question that, that he is harvesting the unbelievers. If you read verse 17, and again, you guys just know that what you're about to read is, uh, is pretty gross. Verse 17, it says, Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel, who had charge of the fire, came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into a great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. That's 200 miles. Okay, so there's a, there's a pretty gross analogy here. And the analogy is this. You've got a wine press. Let me describe what a wine press would look like in that day. Maybe you guys have seen them. It would be a big stone, and it would be carved, just be carved into this, just this big basin, huge basin. And now on the bottom of that basin, there would be a channel or a duct that would come from it to a lower basin. Now, what would happen in this upper basin is they would toss all of the grapes that they would reap and they would throw them in this, this huge wine press. And then what they would do is they would have people jump up on top of there and start stomping on the grapes. You guys have seen that. Um, that's the picture that goes on. And what happens is these people are stomping on the grapes. The juice flows out the bottom into this lower basin. And that's where we get the, the wine or the grape juice. And so the picture here is as these people are stomping, the juice is jumping up onto their garments, under their feet, and it was a picture of judgment because it's saying what flowed out of this wine press was not grape juice, but it was blood. And picture what John is seeing. He's seeing blood coming out. So much blood that it would raise up to a horse's bridle for 200 miles. Just pure blood. It's just a disgusting bloodbath describing this time of judgment you guys it is so tempting right now to apologize for God's wrath and say well you know he's, he's really not that bad you guys God's judgment is perfect and I'm not going to apologize for it it doesn't sit well with me to be honest with you I don't like reading this passage. I don't like thinking about this passage. It grosses me out. But I don't dare say, God, something is wrong with you. I say, God, something's wrong with me. Okay, you understand that? God is perfectly right. He is perfectly just in his blessings. We don't ever say, God, there's something wrong with you to bless the earth that much. Something wrong with you to send your son to die for me. But we do, when it comes to his justice and his hatred for sin, we say, God, I, I don't want to believe that. But you guys, God is perfect. And this is his perfect wrath. Now, people have asked me what caused me to become a Christian when I was a teenager. They say, well, did you feel an emptiness? 
As I was a teenager, I didn't feel any emptiness. I'm not, I'm not saying you couldn't, but I didn't. I didn't feel the void. And I know some of you have come to know the Lord because you felt an emptiness, a void, something that was missing in your life, and that's very valid, and that can happen. But I'm just going to be honest with you guys. The reason why I came to the Lord may not sound real beautiful, but it's because I didn't want to go to hell. And that's the truth. I heard the truth of what God was like, His wrath and His love, and it freaked me out. And I'll remember, I, t- I totally remember calling my youth pastor in the middle of the night, waking him up and saying, Stan, look, I'm freaked out. Um, I don't know if I were to die today or tonight while I'm sleeping that I would go to heaven. And I definitely don't want to go to hell. And he just talked to me on the phone and told me what it meant to be a Christian and just making sure that I really had given my life to him, that I really was following him. I remember the peace that I had. I was like, okay, I really do believe. I know right now that I, I love Jesus Christ and I'm trying to serve him. Some of you are saying, well, what about the guy who's out in the jungle that's never heard about Jesus? You know what? Let's focus on yourself for a second. We'll talk to the guy in the jungle when we get there. You know? And why do we always go there? Why don't we just think about you? Did you see that Satan? Right now, forget about everyone else and just say you. You personally have offended God. You personally have done things that God absolutely hates. But God loves you personally. And he sent his son to die for you. And he says, follow my son. Believe in my son. Now have you decided to follow his son? Do you believe that he sent his son to die for you? Or will you today say, I'm not ready to follow him yet? And I understand. I've talked to people in this room, people in this church who have said to me, I'm just not ready to give up some of the things in my life yet. And I know that becoming a Christian, following Jesus, means I need to turn from my sin and try to follow him. But I'm not ready to give these things up yet because I still love them. My question to you is this. Do you love him so much that you're willing to go to hell for those things? Do you love it that much? Do you want your pride so much that you're, you're willing to go to hell for it? You guys, I'm not trying to sound like some old-time fire and brimstone preacher. I just don't know how else to preach this passage. And maybe we need some more of that preaching nowadays. Because the truth is, is that's what changed me around. And that's what motivates me to a holy life. Is not just focusing on the blessings, but focusing on the consequences. Isn't that human nature anyways? We only do what's right because we're scared of the consequences. And what Satan wants to do is to get the world to stop preaching about the consequences. Don't talk about the future. Because I have, um, I have never been so sure of anything in my life than that Jesus Christ died for me. And that is the good news. And I hope that you have truly come to a relationship with him. If you have never offered your life to God, I'm going to invite you to do that today. We're going to take an offering, but don't worry about the money. That's so secondary. The issue is you offering your life to God. And if you've never done that, if you come to, you've never come to a point where you know that you've come before God and said, God, I believe in you, and I want to follow your son, Jesus Christ, and I'm willing to turn away from my sin and everything else. You just empower me to follow you. 
you're not sure you've ever done that, I invite you to do that this morning. Pastor Doug Fox will be in the back. And as Rachel sings, just feel free to get up. Just go and pray with him. We'll have some others back there to pray with you. Do what I did with my youth pastor. Just said, whatever. You know, I just need to know today. Let's pray. Father, I, uh, I confess that there is sin in my life. And I confess that there are times when I read your word and I don't uh, just stand behind it wholeheartedly. There's hesitancy, God, when I read passages like this because I know how powerful you are and how awful your judgment is. But God, this morning we just say we believe in you. We believe that it is good, it is right, everything you do is perfect and that you would open our minds and help us to understand why it is that we have such a hard time with some of these things. God, I pray for those who have not yet given their lives to you that this morning they would do that that they would realize whatever they're holding on to is not worth it. You are greater than anything this world has to offer. And so, Father, help us truly just to surrender our lives to you during the next few moments, to surrender everything we own, everything we are, and give you all the glory. In Jesus' name.
Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts. You can easily play this week's or past week's program, or even download them on your device in just a few minutes. Search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. Please stay tuned as we are following a program that guides us to know what ethics Christians should hold, titled Christian Ethics. Hello listeners, this is Brian Winston with Christian Ethics. Homosexuality has always been a controversial topic in American society. Until recently, homosexuals were considered as having a mental problem or as individuals who were stigmatized with a sin that could not be forgiven. In fact, until 1974, the American Psychiatric Association stipulated homosexuality as a mental illness and provided psychiatric help to them. On the other hand, people who support homosexuality are using the public education system and mass media to actively promote their argument. 
Is homosexuality a choice made by one's sexual desire, or is it created from genes as they claim it is? The Supreme Court recently legalized same-sex marriage nationwide. The Bible has a lot to say about homosexuality. In fact, there isn't a single verse that speaks positively about it. However, there are people who claim to be homosexual Christians, and they interpret the verses in a way they would like it to be. People who support homosexuality and believe that God allows it claim the following. First, they claim that sexual desire is inherited genetically. They say that it is not by choice that they have become homosexual. Consequently, they say that trying to become straight is as difficult as a straight person trying to become gay. Second, they claim that people have freedom of privacy. They believe that as long as they don't harm others, their freedom should be respected, and the majority that are heterosexual should not force the minority of homosexual individuals to follow and live the same lifestyle. Third, they claim that society and religious groups should not control or insult their love, and rather these groups should let gay individuals express their love, which includes allowing same-sex marriage. Fourth, they claim that Isaiah chapter 56, verses 3 through 5, states churches would accept gays. And finally, they claim that David and Jonathan admit their relationship was homosexual. Here are the counterarguments to these claims. First, homosexuality is a result of choice. Despite all the studies, geneticists still cannot prove that there are gay DNA genes. Therefore, they claim that being born gay does not make sense and that people become gay because they choose to be according to their desire. Second, they claim that it is not true when gays say that they do not harm others. They argue that homosexuality causes harm to health and that such relationships increases the chance of getting AIDS or colon cancer, rectal cancer, hepatitis. And even if they don't get AIDS, the research found that a gay man's average lifespan are shortened by at least 20 years. Some gay men become angry when they hear these facts. But if all of these are true, they really should be made aware of them, just as a smoker has the right to know how unhealthy it is to smoke. The third claim is that the biblical law of marriage is completed between one man and one woman. We know this truth from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Anything contrary to this model is definitely not the ideal image that God had in mind for us. Fourth, Isaiah chapter 56, verses 3 through 5, is not about homosexuality. It's about a eunuch, and even though somebody is considered a eunuch, as long as he obeys God's words and practices them, he can be God's child. And fifth, the claim of the homosexual relationship between David and Jonathan is unfounded. The Bible has no record or evidence that they shared anything more than a friendship. Furthermore, the Bible never approved or declared that homosexuality is right, but there are many verses that criticize it. When God created man, he also created heterosexuality. Genesis chapter 2.24 states, For this reason, 
A man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Hebrew 13.4 says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, he tells Abraham in Genesis chapter 18 verse 20, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. We know through the book of Genesis that Sodom and Gomorrah was full of homosexuality. Jude 1.7 in the New Testament also mentions that Sodom and Gomorrah gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion and how it led them to a punishment of eternal fire. The verse speaks about how their sin is related to the sexual immorality. It is understood that Sodom and Gomorrah were not punished for homosexuality alone. However, it was one of the reasons. Homosexuality is an obvious sin that God detests. But what we have to know is that homosexuality is not a sin that is more evil than any other sin. Homosexuality is one of many sins listed in Romans chapter 1 verses 29 through 31. Christians have to remember the fact that they need to realize their own sins before judging others, and that Jesus came to the sinners. Taunting and judging gay men would only make them want to leave Christ and find somewhere else that would accept them. Just as all sinners need Jesus Christ, they too need Jesus Christ. This concludes this week's episode. Thanks again for listening, and God bless.
We have been talking about the ten evidences of a saved person, according to Martin Lloyd Jones. Now, this is what he said is the last piece of evidence of a saved person: a delight in hearing these things, and in hearing about Him. A saved person who loves God wants to know more about God, and wants to hear more and learn more about Him. This is one of the best evidences. People of the world. Or people who are not of God dread hearing about the gospel and may feel uncomfortable or bothered by it, because their spirits are dead. They have no interest or want nothing to do with the eternal things. In contrast, people who are in love with God want to learn and hear more about Him. If our listeners are always eager and have interest in hearing about the gospel and about God and confidently say this, then you know very well that you have love for Christ. Based on the ten evidences of a saved person shared by Pastor Lloyd Jones, reflect and examine yourselves to see if you are truly saved. If you have a loss of feeling that God is against you, a loss of fear of God, while a sense of awe remains, have a sense that God is for you and that God loves you. If you have a sense of forgiveness of your sins and no longer are in a state of guiltiness, feeling a sense of gratitude and thanksgiving towards God. You begin to have an increased hatred of sin, have a desire to please God and to live a good life because of what He has done for you, have a desire to know Him better, and to draw closer to Him. Have a conscious regret that your love for Him is so poor, combined with a desire to love Him more, and feel delighted and joyful in hearing things about Him. Then the Lord is within you, and you are within Him. All these things are evidence that you are a child of God. These are ten types of changes that are typically exemplified in someone who has received salvation. Do you get frightened by the thought of what punishment God may give you because of a certain sin? When you think of the pleasure or delight you had from the past sins, do you have an urge or desire to continue that sin? Or does it feel heavy and burdensome to live as a Christian? Do you feel satisfied as a Christian by attending one Sunday service a week? By tithing and giving offering, do you feel like you've done enough, or feel as if there is no one else that serves as much as you? When Bible study is offered, do you come with excuses about why you cannot go, or when attending, do you always feel drowsy, but during fellowship have no idea where all that drowsiness went? And instead of having interest in conversing about God, do you have more interest in speaking about current events, movies, celebrities, and the like? If so, take some time to reflect upon your faith. You may need to question your faith and your confidence in being saved. Jim Simbala of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church of New York once said this: "If you do not want to grow closer to God on this land, why do you want to go to heaven? God is the center of heaven. If you are not happy by the presence of God here and right now, even in heaven you cannot experience everything it has to offer. The people who do not seek God with a passion, why would God accept you into heaven?" Do you desire to know for certain whether or not you are saved? You can tell by the passion and yearning inside of you for God. It tells us in Second Corinthians chapter thirteen, verse five: "Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test?" I hope that this coming week. As saved children of God, we may test, examine, and prove our faith. We will now wrap up unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, as it has been my pleasure. I hope to see you this time next week, and God bless.
art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Come and let your glory come and let your glory fall. Our Father, who art in heaven, the rocks cry out of your It is.